Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis. I am joined by Sarah Bae Jung of York University. Sarah, it is really great to see you in person again. I think the last time we were in the same room was at Circe 2020 in Providence, Rhode Island, recording episode 39 of this podcast in front of a live audience. Uh, March 7th, if I'm not correct, 2020, that was when we learned that University of Washington was shutting down classes, the pandemic was hitting us like a train. Um, it's great to see you again. It, uh, how, is, how have you been? I don't know. Uh, well, you know, uh, uh, it's great to see you too, panel. Um, I will say I picked a very strange moment to go into academic administration. Um, so yes. so there, there's that. But yes, in fact, I remember at that conference, we, we were getting sort of news of uh, the flu and this idea. And there, there was a whole performance uh, dance choreography of hand washing. I don't yep. know if you remember, there was a whole yep. video of how to wash your, uh, I don't know if it was TikTok or some it was, social media. It wasn't social media. And what I remember is that it was from Korea and that Sydney Skybetter found this, which was suddenly going viral about how to wash your hands yeah. and not yeah. spread the and virus. And we will defeat the coronavirus together. And we all in a room in which we were, you know, all breathing on each other, of course, um, did this dance simultaneously. So anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, so great to be not dancing um, with you again. Indeed, indeed. Um, uh, and we are delighted to be joined also by Leticia Ridley of Santa Clara University in Silicon Valley. Leticia, it's Woo-hoo! great to record in person with you. I have to ask um, what it's like to start a job in a year like this. It's it's not as bizarre, I imagine, as it would have been last year, but still it has to be something of a strange experience. How is your first quarter going? My first quarter is a whirlwind. I will say the transition from graduate student to assistant professor is a strange one. Um, and it's also strange in that I'm teaching mostly first years and the students haven't been in a college classroom before. So they're trying to like figure it out while I'm also trying to figure it out. So they'll ask me certain things about the university. And I'm like, I just got here too. But I will say there's a renewed energy uh, to be in community with one another. Um, especially in Silicon Valley, where a lot of uh, the tech companies are moving um, away. Um, and, you know, so far, so good. One quarter almost down, uh, two more perhaps to go. Hopefully, fingers crossed that uh, COVID uh, doesn't run more rampant than it already has in these uh, upcoming winter months. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, just the experience I remember of my first year, my first semester in a job, it's all so overstimulating anyway. And then that added layer of complications, it must be, I I imagine it must be tough. But then I also, at least from my experience, I do feel like this year, the students are really happy to be on campus. And that that, I bet, gives you a bit of a, I don't know, a shot in the arm and and maybe makes things more exciting in a certain way. Um, Also on the recording for this episode is Jordan Ely of the University of Maryland. Jordan and Leticia are the duo behind the Daughters of Lorraine podcast. Um, We we like to have them on the same episodes together when we can. Jordan, I was looking up your dramaturgy work and found the reviews that you've been writing for DC Metro Theater Arts. You wrote a review this summer of Angelica Sherry's play Berta Berta, the production at Everyman Theater in Baltimore. A wonderful review. And it 
in that moment, I sort of realized with the reemergence of in-person theater, there are theater reviews again. There's theater criticism again. What, If you don't mind me asking, what was it like writing a piece of theater criticism after a long pause in live productions? Um, so I actually did view this one virtually. So every man made them available virtually so people could see it in person and also in um, a virtual setting. So I was actually able to view that from my home. But um, I am looking forward to returning back into in-person theater. Um, well, actually, I have been going to in-person theater. Um, and I definitely feel much more grateful, I feel like. And I also feel like I'm so much more, um, probably a little bit more, um, I want to say compassionate <laughs> to art making. Because I'm like, y'all have not been able to do this specific kind of performance in so long so it just makes me more appreciative like I'm like I don't even care if I liked it I'm just happy to be here <laughs> <laughs> nice nice well it was a, a wonderful review um wonderful uh, play also and yeah. wonderful playwright <laughs> I remember um Lydia Tyler is in that production and I uh, met her in graduate school we were at Brown Trinity at the same time so it was great to um to see her written about and the photographs of her in performance and everything um so today on the podcast, we're going to talk about the most recent edition of the Journal of Dramatic Theory and Criticism, specifically hashtag performative X, the special section edited by Michelle Carriger with many takes on the uses and abuses of the term performative in recent years. I'm really excited to dig into that. We also watched one of the sessions uh, of the Feminist Theater uh, uh, Past and Present panel series organized by Sue Pearlgut and Jessica Del Vecchio and presented as part of the commemoration of LGBT and feminist studies at Cornell. We are also here at Aster 2021. The four of us are in the conference hotel recording this, very much in person, um, and much, though not exactly the way we remember it, I think, going to uh, in-person conferences. So we'll talk about what is, for many of us, the first time back at a physical gathering of scholars and artists in quite a while. Before we get into those topics, we would like to acknowledge the history of the land where Aster 2021 is located. And here I have taken some language from the land acknowledgement written by Mike Connolly Misquish for San Diego State University. This site where we are recording and most of the San Diego area is on the traditional lands of the Kumie people. As visitors to this place, we acknowledge that for millennia, this land has nourished, healed, protected, and embraced the Kumie for many generations in a relationship of balance and harmony. We promote this balance and harmony. We find inspiration from this land, from the land of the Kumie. So, hashtag performative X, the special section in the spring 2021 edition of the Journal of Dramatic Theory and Criticism. We read, we each read Michelle Carriger's introductory essay to the special section and several of the 17 different pieces <laughs> in the special section. I'll, I'll note that this would be more than enough for an edition, uh, a special edition of any journal, but with Arrow Lane editing, there's 17 essays in a special section and three full articles on top of everything else that uh, JDTC does in every issue. Very, very impressive. Um, uh, Michelle Carriger explains in her introductory essay that one of the many bizarre and surprising social and discursive phenomena that arose last year, perhaps not the most urgent, 
but one of special interest to us in theater and performance studies was that it became clear that the term performative has come to mean theatrical in common parlance. So those of us who have studied performativity as a theoretical term, usually with initial reference to J.L. Austin's linguistic lectures of the 1950s, think of performativity in a distinct way. An action or an utterance is performative when it effectuates a new social fact. However, in discourse online, especially, and in mainstream media, people have been using performative to mean something closer to what many of us think of as the pejorative aspects of theatrical. That is something somehow false or hollow, only for the sake of appearance, but not really. As Carragher puts it in that introductory essay, it began to feel as if the pervasive ambivalent power of theatricality was really, realist, was really reestablishing dominion over performance studies attempt to define an efficacious or real ground to performance. Uh, there's a lot to talk about here. This has been, you know, something that theater scholars have been batting around on Twitter for a while. Um, and I really don't want to steer things into my own wheelhouse too much, but I just want to make a quick observation, which is that in the essays I read, I noticed a couple of major themes in the special section. One, on the one hand, there's the phenomenon of the semantic mutation or variation or confusion uh, around what performative means, not just in everyday non-academic speech, but also in theater and performance studies scholarship itself. And, and Aaron Thomas really goes uh, into that issue directly in his essay. And then there is another theme that, that crossed several of the essays I read, which is this particular idea of performative allyship, closely related to a notion that many of us will have heard of called virtue signaling, which is to say the idea that, especially on social media, but also in other settings, uh, for example, and this is in uh, along the lines of Kelsey Blair's essay, um, especially the uh, things like the land acknowledgement that I just read, that, that people somehow symbolically affirm values in ways that are actually hollow or ineffectual or otherwise infelicitous. So... I read a handful of these essays, not all of them. I know that um, uh, you all read a, a, a selection of them as well. Um, I don't know. What did you pick up on in there, and what can we say about what's happening to the word performative? Sarah? Uh, well, thank you, panel. I, so first of all, just a, a confession. I, when this, I, I sort of briefly inter, uh, interjected or participated in some of the Twitter discourse um, as a... a Slightly tongue-in-cheek and slightly sincere, um, uh, so I'll let you decide if it was performative or not. Um, defender of the migration of the word performative into areas other than that that J.L. Austin uh, uh, and folks like Judith Butler outlined. And I do that for two reasons. One is that let's all remember that J.L. Austin actually excluded theater and poetry from the context of the performative, right? You the, be, Precisely because they were fake and could not cause anything to come into to, to, to being. Um, like the I do on stage did not have the same uh, effect as it did in, you know, uh, regular life. Um, but also because it's so much fun to get Aaron Thomas riled up on Twitter. Indeed. Um, so that would really be my, uh, my, my reasoning there. Um, and uh, so it was, it, it, but the conversation has been really quite wonderful on Twitter and, and it kind of captured what I, what I've, what I love most about academic social social media, which is the kind of intersection of um, uh, of of wit, uh, high theory, low culture, 
And and I feel like in many of these essays, the spirit of that combination um, conti- continued. Um, and so I think, you know, um, Patrick McKelvey's, you know, the title, like, uh, what is it? You know, you're so performative. You probably think this essay is about you, um, <laughs> you know, from the, right. from the Carly. It's just, and so I, I really, I really loved it. And I will also say, and we can dig into the context uh, or, you know, the actual content a little bit, but. I love that. I loved the length of these essays. Right. Like I loved the kind of short, shorter form, tight argument, clear examples, get in, get out, and the ability to kind of read it then is this really kind of uh, thorough mosaic. And so I just really want to uh, commend the the editors uh, and the contributors for for doing it because I thought it it touched on a lot of things. Um, with a broader range than we usually get in some special issues. Uh, so I, I really, I really loved, I really loved that. I'm curious, uh, you know, Jordan and Leticia, what did you, uh, what were your reads? What were your favorite essays here? Yeah. Um, one of my favorite essays was James McMaster's In, Devin- In Defense of Virtual Signaling. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, specifically, I love this idea of suggesting that virtual signaling actually does something right. It may not go far enough. It may not yeah. be the end-all, be-all. It may not be abolition right. Um, but that act is, you know, to sort of borrow some of J.L. Austin's word, enacting something, bringing something into being. Um, and I, I, and there's something particularly to me about this moment that we're in with social media and the digital age that really expands our thinking about performative, right? Even if you even think of, um, you know, Twitter, and the use of memes and GIFs, or more recently, like TikTok, right? Like very per- performance spaces, right? That people can, I think, read as performative in that it's fake um, and or, you know, not real um, and that it really doesn't do the, do anything. But I actually think that it is a way for us to sort of expand our language of performance studies in ways that I think are really exciting, that really are more expansive than we have in the past. Like if we're all here at ASTR and the whole... Uh, you know, conference theme is uh, rep- uh, repetition. What Theater and performance after repetition. Theater and performance after repetition, right? Which is going back to R- Richard Schechner and like trying to pull, push the bounds of that definition. So this, I really love, um, I really loved this special issue. I also loved the length of it. And I really like uh, the ways that we as a field are starting to sort of push uh, very foundational concepts. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think even if, you know, we may not all agree what performative is, I think that it really expands us to go in different ways and different directions that helps us define what performance studies is, even as we are saying, <laughs> you know, we don't have any definition. That's I heard that all through grad school. Um, but, you know, um, so I, I really I really enjoyed uh, many of the essays that I read. And it, to me, the really thing that really stuck out in uh, panel, you said this, was the focus on social media um, that really, really stuck out to me. Yeah, it did to me. Too. I, I want to hear, um, uh, Jordan, what you thought as well. But I'll say this about James McMaster's essay, which I read as well um, and I liked. Um, to me, I, I appreciate what his argument is, how the, the, the notion that um, performative allyship actually does have some effect. It is not just a pure absence. It's not just something, you know, insincere or we better be better off without it. I feel like many of us have probably had that experience he describes. You see something come through your feed. You think, okay, I need to post on this. Mm-hmm. I need to show people where I'm at. And you feel as though you have the the power to sort of, I don't know, put a 
flag in the ground and say, this is where I stand, and it creates some sort of social pressure, right? That, that you feel like you're, you can say, I'm on this side of this cause, and it creates something. Um, I, I wondered in that particular essay, though, if there, if I would have liked to see more analysis of, or more, I don't know, distinguishing between the way this works specifically as an online phenomenon, right? I mean, people virtue signal or they, uh, you know, perform their allyship, et cetera, in other settings. But it really seems like this is kind of a social media phenomenon in certain ways. Um, but I, I agree. I like that. I felt like he was quite on the other side of that thesis from uh, Kelsey Blair, though, which I thought was interesting. Um, Jordan, I'm, I'm curious to know what, what you read, what you liked. Um, I, I also, in a way, I want to ask you to respond to Sarah, who said, if I may paraphrase you in front of your own face. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll turn away. Then in a way, it's not a problem or it's not bad that people now use performative to essentially mean theatrical, that this isn't something we need to be upset about. I mean, how do you feel when you hear performative, people use the word performative in that way? I, I feel like I'm definitely one of those people that's like, uh, no. Exactly. No, no, no. I remember being in a history class where we were reading... Um, something where a historian was using, like, the language of performance studies. I mean, they're citing Judith Butler. They're using um, Susan Lee Foster. They're talking about all of these different concepts. And a lot of the historians in that class were like, oh, what are you saying? Are you saying this is fake? Are you saying this is fictional? And I remember being like, y'all, no. <laughs> performance it does not necessarily mean a fake event. <laughs> um, but also... Performance, performative, and performativity are three different terms with three different meanings. And which one are we using? There's so many different languages of performance, blah, 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 blah. Um, so I'm definitely one of those people when I saw the term performative allyship, I was like, I mean, don't we want allies to perform? I mean, doesn't like is that does that necessarily mean that it is fake or feigned or anything like like I wouldn't want someone who consider themselves to be an ally, for example, to not do anything. Um, so I think allyship has to in some way be performative in order for it to just not be a, something that people call themselves. But that's another conversation for another day. Um, one of the essays that really stuck out to me was actually from my colleague, Janina Strother, um, who attends University of Maryland um, with me and also formerly Leticia, Dr. Ridley, excuse me. Um, and in her essay, I was very struck by, one, dance as this kind of space that that is um, being examined as a performative. Um, I, sometimes dance feels like it's kind of the redheaded stepchild <laughs> of performance studies in theater. And so it's really nice to always be able to have that as part of the conversation. Um, but I really relate it to that essay in terms of being... I love the series of questions she asks at the end of that essay um, where she asks, like, who defines what is performative and what is not? What, you know, what are the stakes in in performing performative allyship or performing in general? And she um, she talks about the fatigue she felt with, you know, the, the, the hashtags and the black squares and all the other things that were happening in this kind of, I always call summer of 2020, the summer of the anti-racist book list, <laughs> but it's like, yeah, it was a very exhausting time. But then she talks about the moment of seeing like a Maori dance of the Hakka and that like awakening her to say like, no performance does something. I mean, when I saw that dance, I realized I wasn't alone 
in this struggle. I wasn't alone in this fight for justice. And so, I don't know, I, I appreciated that kind of hopeful or optimistic turn that wasn't necessarily kind of, optimism gets a bad rep, kind of like performative, <laughs> where it's like, do you see the world? There's no hope. Um, so it was nice to to think about dance and performance as a side of resistance and, and seeing that other side of it. Um, and just zooming out even more to the 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 special issue writ large is I also agree that not only did we get just a nice great amount of of essays and just the right amount of space <laughs> that they dedicated to them, but also just the diversity of thought, mm-hmm. the like different ideologies that we got, the different ways of approaching performative, the different texts that we were you know just exposed to within that. Um, I really appreciate it. I think this is just structurally speaking a really great model for special issues to come, especially ones that deal with something that's so topical because we know that academic publishing can take so long. So like I was very impressed by one that they were able to put this together in such a short amount of time and also being able to um to still be relevant because oftentimes, you know, you put in an essay that you wrote three years ago and you're like, do I even still feel the same? Um, And so it was, it's nice to feel like we're kind of on the pace of (laughs) what's going on in the world. Um, But also I appreciated that there were so many different points of view, but that um, like, it it almost feels like there's something for everyone who Mm -hmm. feels a way about performative, like, What's your take? Okay, are you Kelsey Blair? Are you a Patrick McKelvey? Are you a Jeannie the Schroeder? Are you a Jared Strange? You know, whatever it is. So yeah. I really appreciated just the um, the amount of, of different arguments that we got around the performative. Absolutely. I mean, there's real debate. There's real cl- what we call in debate uh, clash. People who act, I'm, I don't think, they didn't go back and forth necessarily, but if you read James McMaster, um, and then you read Kelsey Blair, you realize, oh, that Kelsey Blair is giving a critique of precisely the type of behavior that James McMaster is saying, this is good. It's good that we have this. And I feel like there's a, a kind of bigger question those two pieces in particular raised to me, which is, is it really about the effect that these actions or utterances have? Or is it the way that we have trouble judging the effectiveness of these things that we say, right? Well, you know, I, I want to come back to something you said a, a moment ago, uh, panel, in which you talked about um, a, a gesture or is it nothing and and the emptiness. And one of the things that I found really interesting in both the committing to commitment, um, the Trudodian non-performative um, by Brian Batchelor, um, but also the piece by Lillian Mengesha, um, the... Um, the being in whiteness, settler possession, and performative wokeness in the Thanksgiving play, um, which is, and, and the, the I think one of the really important ideas uh, from Mengesha's essay is that nothingness is the appearance of white possession, right? So, and that, and this is maybe where I think the, the performative as a theoretical concept uh, that we've, you know, sort of learned in a certain kind of context and performative as an adjective or a substitute adjective around, or an extension of theatrical or showy, right? Like this idea actually function less as ends of a spectrum and more like ends of a bell curve, which is that the further you go towards each, they actually seem to wrap, start to wrap towards each other. And for me, it became really critical in this idea of emptiness and nothingness. Um, 
somewhat in the idea of a structuring absence, but also in the fact that any, any act is an act of something. And that, the, that an emptiness of gesture, um, which might be seen as the extreme of performativity on the negative theatrical end, then almost all the, always becomes an instantiation of something else. And so therefore becomes, becomes the Austinian performative because it is actually in the, in the excessive, uh, you know, aesthetic performance or showy performance, one then in this context substantiates something else. And that for me becomes a, an interesting idea with this idea of virtue signaling, like, or the Trudeauian, Trudeauian if I, apologies to my Canadian uh, uh, comrades um, for not knowing how to pronounce that word correctly. But the idea that, that his getting it wrong, um, in fact, gets something else right if we're reading it correctly, which then, for me, reflects back on John Fletcher's um, really wonderful plenary and uh, from several years ago and, and work in which he imagines the, the reimagines really horrible acts like, like Bill, Bull Connor defending the, you know, the integrated schoolhouse in a way that becomes an instantiation of something else that can get read against the grain. And this, this idea, I think he has an idea, and I'm sorry, John, but there's like this idea of like generous readings of, of these different kind of performative instantiations. Um, he refers to, to Fred Phelps and the, you know, the, the, you know, uh, the protest church protests of, um, service people. Uh, anyway, I'm going on and on, so I'll stop there. But for yeah. me, th there, there are a number of ways that you can kind of read these essays through different combinations that, that get at some really, for me, again, and I'll, maybe I'll use this as a way of defending my own, <laughs> that defend the expansiveness and the capaciousness of, uh, of performative as an, idea, as an idea and as a word. Yeah, I, I think it gets it, there. I think the, in a way, the provocation that starts this all out, or the the inciting incident, uh, is this notion that people are using performative in this new way. It's not technical the way that the definitions are that we understand in the field, and it's definitely negative. No one says you're, you know, being a performative ally, and what they mean is that you're being a great ally. Mm -hmm. um, and my sense is that it has become that way just because uh, maybe this is not a suitably complex or complicated explanation, but that over the years as performance studies and theories of performativity have become sort of standard in, in college and graduate education, that there's become this idea that, you know, performative is the smart way to say theatrical or showy, mm -hmm. right? And that it's, I feel like a lot of people have read Judith Butler, they have read Austin, they understand what it means or they understood what it means, but now it's just become this sort of sophisticated way, a way of marking yourself as being you know, college educated um, and saying that something is, uh, you know, sort of hollow or empty or, or showy or fake. Um, I, I just want to uh, make mention, special mention uh, of uh, Aaron Thomas's essay, which I think is super, super useful. I, ex having read what he says about uses of the performative on Twitter, I expected this to be kind of a rant. Um, it's not a rant. Um, it's an extremely rigorous, methodical survey of the different ways that performative, that the term performative has been used in our mm -hmm. field. Um, and just to give one little example, I have been one of those people in the past who has, you know, uh, chastised other people for not using performative correctly. I wrote a book review of my, my friend and colleague, Logan Connor's book, 
Um, uh, Logan's at Aster. Uh, what's up, Logan? Um, <laughs> I assume you're listening. If you're not, you don't need to reply. Uh, in, a, in any case, you don't need to reply. Um, you have 24 hours to respond. <laughs> you have 24 hours to respond. This podcast will just deconstruct. This podcast will deconstruct. But I, I took him to task for using, I think, in my in my review, the little part of the book review at the end where you're supposed to say something that could be better. Um, I said that he, you know, he uses the term performative without an apparent, uh, you know, cognizance of that of the of the meaning of the term in performance studies. Well, it turns out the way he was using that term is the way Aaron Thomas points out the way that Victor Turner used it in you know prior to um, uh, everyone's sort of familiarity with with uh, with J L Austin to basically mean the the sort of theater or performance aspects of an activity right or theater like. This is a really useful survey, um, so I really hope that that uh, people check that out. And, and there's so many other essays in it that are that are worth reading. Can I ask one more question, I, Leticia? I would like your take on this in particular, but sort of like something that panel just is. Do you see this as distinct in 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 social media, or are there other or 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 can you think about what? Or for you, does it also hit outside of that as well? I think I think it's a sort of both end. I think the way that social media expands our definition or, you know, uh, gets us to think about performativity in different ways and without fidelity to sort of any definition necessarily. I think I, I really enjoy that fact. You're and, performatively ag- agnostic. Is that what I'm hearing over <laughs> Yes, here? yes, okay. yes, I am. Um, because I think there's, like, sometimes I wonder in, in our field, what is what is the use of sort of these foundational concepts or definitions that we hold so tight to, right? Like, um, what work do they do for us now in a world that's ever-changing? Like, you mentioned uh, earlier, Sarah, about, uh, like, the changing context, right, of when J.L. Austin was, was writing, right? Um, and w- what use is that for us today? And I'm not saying we throw the baby out with the bathwater, um, but I, I'm always curious, and I, and I see this particularly as a social media uh, phenomenon, is that it allows folks to throw things on the wall and see if the spaghetti sticks. Um, and it, it generates more discourse, not in a sense to um, try to be correct, not in a sense of like, I'm trying to get cited um, so I can get tenured or, you know, you know, whatever it is. Um, but people are just trying out ideas. Um, and sometimes people just throw things on the wall just to see a reaction that could be read as like even something they don't believe could be read as, as performative. I do see I will say I do see it, I think, in other places um, in traditional other sort of like sp- spectacular performances um, in sports in particular. If you look what the men on the bench are doing, very performative. <laughs> Yeah, like you yeah. know, they're not that hype. They see that they see LeBron James dunk all the time, and now this is just a big. Oh, this is huge! You know, you have Dwight Howard running back and forth the baseline. It's not that big of a deal, right? Um, but there, I think there is a certain sort of performativity, even with that, in which they're trying to sort of hype up the rest of the fans. So, yeah. okay, so sports actually seems like a really interesting place where performative means both things simultaneously, right? Yeah. It is showy and and maybe lacks authenticity of a certain kind. Yep. And yet, because sports is never an empty gesture, yep. it also brings something into being because what is a game unless it is actively being played? So one has to perform it, like one perform, anyway, but it also then becomes, and it is a a, 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 a true social phenomenon, right? Like, I mean, I'm, and I'm quite a significant one, right? Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. um, probably more people watch the Super Bowl than get married on that particular day. So, you know, if that's, we're just- That's a wonderful example. Quantify. You should write that paper. There, I, it's yours. I don't know. <laughs> 
Um, well, I hope listeners will, will if they have not already, check out the, the special section and, the in fact, check out the entire edition of the journal that came out in spring 2021. Um, really, really fantastic work. Um, we wanted to talk also about feminist theater past and present. This is a series of panels about feminist theater organized by um, uh, Sue Pearlgut and Jessica Del Vecchio. And these panels are all being featured as part of the celebration of the 30th anniversary of LGBT studies at Cornell and the 50th anniversary of feminist gender and sexuality studies at Cornell, formerly known as women's studies. Um, the first of these three sessions, uh, entitled The Personal is Political and Performable, was held on September 30th, and it examined feminist theater groups active during the second wave women's liberation movement. Um, uh, uh, Sarah Warner moderated the panel, and it featured Roberta Sklar and Sandra Siegel of the Women's Experimental Theater, Bobby uh, Osabel of Caravan Theater, uh, Mark, uh, Martha Bosing of At the Foot of the Mountain Theater, um, that you can actually check out on YouTube. We'll put links up on the, the 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 podcast website. We watched the second of the three sessions uh, called Theater in uh, or uh, Theater in the Third Wave, which looked at feminist performance in the 1980s and 90s. The third of these three sessions will look at the last 10 years, and that is going to be held on November 18th. You can still listeners, you'll still be able to. Uh, register for that and watch it live. Um, so each of these sessions features important feminist th theater practitioners and, and scholars. The, the session that we watched was moderated by Elisa Solomon. It featured Marga Gomez, Deb Margolin, Carmelita Tropicana, uh, Mo Angelos of Five Lesbian Brothers. Um, and it was just great, just a delight. I could go on and on, but I want to hear what my co-hosts thought about it. Um, I don't know. Latisse we were waiting for panel to finish explaining <laughs> feminist theater. <laughs> feminist theater. <laughs> Listen, I feel like I have to tee these up for the listeners and build excitement, and I, I just have, I have no opinions. I'm just here to serve. Um, but I don't know. Uh, uh, why don't I, why don't I uh, ask the, the daughters of Lorraine, um, uh, in the, in the vein of your own sort of, I don't know, identifying yourself in a generational tradition, let's say, um, by virtue of your, the podcast's name. Um, what did you think about um, uh, about this session that we watched? Yeah. Um, so I. I found so many things about it to be really instructive about thinking about feminist theater history. Um, specifically, looking, I, I appreciated the gene. I appreciate the genealogy of the entire like structure of this celebration in general. Thinking about decades and and when and how particular um, artists came to be and how this idea of feminist theater, which I'd love to hear people try to define <laughs> in a moment. Um, but something that I I kind of grabbed onto is, I believe it was Deb Margolin was saying, um, when the lights came up on a woman on stage, it is a radical act. And she used the word radical a lot to think about the interventions that these feminist theater companies were making in the 80s and 90s. Um, and, you know, for me, I found it very telling that so many of the women on the panel were solo performers. And, you know, it made me think about the the uses of that particular, like, form of uh, performance making as a feminist, like, as inherently has to be feminist, like, based on, you know, 
who is embodying it and, and in what moment and in what context. I mean, having to look at a woman, right, for an hour at least minimum, right, is, you know, is something that was really pioneered by those performance artists in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So, you know, looking at the ways that these women were um, basically forcing your eyes on them, I think is really powerful and important. Um, I was, you know, thinking about the the absence of Black women on this panel um, and in thinking about that particular perspective on feminism and feminist theater um, and, you know, what that might have looked like had a Black woman or Black femme been included in this conversation or even the the conversation even zooming out to think about Blackness within the feminist movements, which we know from second wave feminism had a lot of... Um, um, problems when it comes, <laughs> is, that, is that a good word? Um, problems when it came to, to thinking specifically around the issues that um, affected black women. So it also, when, when viewing this panel, I did want to think about the, the ways that theater sometimes erases, not sometimes, it does absolutely 100% um, erase and extract from black women. Um, and, and so what, what, what would a black woman have brought to this conversation um, around radical acts, feminism, gendered um, explorations and performance art? Um, so that was where I was there. I don't know. Leticia, do you <laughs> have a, any other thoughts? Yeah, I definitely have some thoughts. And I, I, we talked about this, right? We absolutely agree um, the absence of black women and, you know, Daughters of Lorraine. Uh, a black theater from a black feminist perspective. So, you know, our politics are really upfront um, in the tradition in which we see both of our work operating in. Um, I think something that Carmelita Tropicana said that I think was really potent and sort of adding to this idea is that uh, she talked about the plural of feminism, mm -hmm. um, feminisms, she, yeah. and, and really honing in on the specific and that allowing her to sort of feel like she could enter into feminist theater broadly. Um and I, I guess I'm, I, I really appreciated that. Um, and I do also appreciate how the, the particular panel was working uh, in coalition, right? So they could talk to each other, people they actually performed with, that they worked with. Um, we've seen pieces of the performances throughout. And then we really foregrounded the artist voice, right? So instead of like a critic or someone watching the performance and telling us what it's about, right? We get to actually hear sort of the inception and in what the actual uh, solo performances were trying to do. So I did really, uh, did really appreciate that part of of the panel um, because oftentimes these conversations could just be people talking about something, and it's kind of hard to sort of grasp on, like, okay, so what did this actually look like? Um, so I really appreciated that uh, the organizers were really. Uh, really pushing for us to actually see what this looks like. But at the same time, I, I wonder if perhaps we could, you know, just to sort of add to what you're saying, Jordan, think about feminist theaters, past and present, to sort of even get us out of this idea that feminism is one thing, right? And there's many different traditions and branches in which we can enter and, and exit from. Um, but perhaps that's even a larger conversation in our field um, about honing in on that language and that specificity a bit more. I also want to say like Carmelita Chapacana, I appreciated just the self-reflexivity that she had about like, she's like, I wasn't a fem, I wasn't like born a feminist. Like I had to like come and learn and be in, in community with other women and see this happening. And I think she like says like, I bought into the man's idea of feminism. Like 
feminists weren't funny, feminists, you know, were all these things. And so when I came to this space and met a bunch of women who were like laughing together, that to me taught me so much about what feminism is. And so she I also she also that. said she was going for the girls. I know, yeah, she did. <laughs> She's like, I became a lesbian, so <laughs> and I'm like, get it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I will say I picked up on the that theme of sort of joy and laughter in the sense that I think this was um, uh, maybe it was Deb Margolin who was sort of hitting this theme, which was that it was you know surprising to see that women's theater or queer women's theater or feminist theater did not have to be um, somber or or whatever that it was fun that it was fun and funny and a lot of the clips of the shows that they were showing it, and and just I don't know the the energy on the session really demonstrated how it was a sort of joyful inter- enterprise for people involved. Uh, I think it's a really good point about the absence of black women on the on the session, and I wonder to what degree that is about. I mean, you get a lot of this in in the interviews about the women talking about their experiences. They've all worked together, and you get the sense that this was sort of a scene and that they collaborated on shows, they collaborated on projects. So, you know, is it that this was a scene where black women weren't tied in for whatever reason? Um, you know, I'm not I'm not sure, but um, it's a it's an it's an interesting absence for, for certain. There was a I mean, there was a sense of proximity, I mean, and a, and a sense of history and and. I wonder how people who don't know these artists or this work um, or, you know, have have read any of the account, like might have received it Um, uh, because it did seem like like they got into a moment where it felt like people were talking in shorthand, Mm -hmm. not just among them, but also among the audience. Um, And so I I found myself, I'm like, oh, I, I get that reference, but, you know, what if you didn't? Um, but one of the things that that I thought that they talked about in a in a specific, more specific way that I really appreciated it was um, it was in response to one of the the lightning round questions, um, which is it was like what do you miss or you know what's something we don't have or what's something we lost or uh, I can't remember the exact phrasing, and there and I think it was Marco Gomez who said I miss or I I, I yeah I think it was I miss um, when queers and people of color could live near theaters, mm-hmm. and. And and that is a big loss. I mean, that is a loss that is happening everywhere. And we don't talk very often about housing and transportation and and theater cultures. Um, but it is and and the life of of urban environments and what cities look like and feel like and and have to do with cultural production. But it is absolutely critical. And it was very much marked by that time. But it was also um, a, a New York, you know, particularly in the seventies and eighties, that was highly segregated. Mm-hmm. So the idea of who lives near what theaters and what spaces and draws community, because these things, you know, were, you know, it was before the internet, like, you know, there, there were zines and flyers you could put on telephone poles and, but, but it was like who you had proximity to. And so it, it also, there was, I found myself also reflecting on like, what are the larger networks of community and proximity that underlie not just you know, feminist theaters of, of, you know, Wow Cafe and, and that period, but, but, but more broadly. And then really reflecting on a time in New York, which, you know, for all the things that we sort of think of as in, enchanted about that time or the things that were possible, like when you could have a, you know, really cruddy apartment near a very cool theater, um, there was also so much distance. 
and there were boundaries that did not get crossed. And, um, you know, and, some, and when somebody mentioned it too, like, oh, back when, I can't remember what they said, like back when, you know, like New York was terrible or something. Yeah. It was really <laughs> like, it was like dirty and ugly and horrible and wonderful, right? You know, and so it's it's always interesting to look at uh, those environments and the way they they manifest. Yeah, I wonder what we would we even consider a contemporary feminist theater scene now? Oh boy, I I, I think that's like a a, a particular hashtag. No, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. It might be happening on Twitter right now. As we speak. I will. I think. I mean, I think that's like the, those yeah. are our communities, right? Mm-hmm. You know. Um, and it's and it's always really interesting if we can go back to etymology uh, uh, for a moment, right? But like a channel, mm-hmm. right? That we think of as as like a like a digital thing, right? Or a you know a, a televisual thing, right? Back in the days when you used to change the channel, but the term also refers to like you know a a, a, a waterway, mm-hmm. right? Uh, something that that directs a concentration of same, same in, in, you know, in between two, two points, usually water or something like that. And so there are also, there are all these channels that we get locked into, uh, historically that were physical and material, but now I think they're more cultural and digital. And so, yeah, it's that, it's like in which neighborhood hashtag are you hanging out? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, they will answer our question because the next panel is going to be to write to the present. Um, of what feminist theater is. And, you know, I also wonder, and this is something I'm thinking about in my own work um, as I'm putting together my book proposal, um, uh, (laughs) is thinking about in our field um, when uh, women, when women of color become worthy of study or Mm. worthy of being a part of a a larger manuscript, right? Um, And is there a tendency to create, you know, panels like this and, you know, manuscripts about things that happened in the past when it's attached to women. So women's worth only become useful in that, like, it already happened and now we can reflect on it. Um, and I, and I, I wonder if there's something similar happening with uh, feminist theater, right, that we can now reflect and be like, oh, that was really useful in a way that we couldn't in the contemporary moment. And I wonder sometimes if the focus on the past limits our scope of what it's doing in the now. That's, that's interesting because I think in, there's so many dynamics going on here that resonate with other sort of proximal phenomena. In a way, this is a sort of generational thing. It's commemorating, uh, you know, um, uh, sexuality, feminist studies at Cornell. Um, it reminds me of the sort of retrospectives that were happening last year with Fornes' work, with Adrian Kennedy, where it's a sense of here are these major figures in American theater. They are around, you know, and and but have have we had the moment where we do a retrospective and we you know, get the sort of testimony that we can or restage the work. Um, you know, Leticia, you, you asked the question a few minutes ago, what, uh, what is a feminist theater collective now or a feminist theater sort of scene now? Um, and in a way, I, I got the sense from the narratives we saw that many of the women had a similar experience, which was that they were refugees from, they were refugees or they were sort of young people looking for their place in the world and found this community where there were other women, other queer women, uh, making this new kind of work they had no idea existed. Um, and they sort of made a home for themselves, an artistic and, and a social home for themselves. Um, maybe it's maybe the analogy now would be trans people, non-binary people, gender non-conforming people who it, perhaps are similarly looking for ways that their experience, their life can be presented on stage. And rather than, you know, uh, wanting to fit themselves into the the gender 
um, molds that exist or have existed that there would be an impulse to create a new theater. And that's not, that's not the same thing as, you know, a feminist uh, theater collective or scene. But it seemed to me that this, what was being described here was a kind of emergent moment or an emergent um, uh, artistic vocabulary, artistic community. Um, so I, I don't know that the, I don't know that such a, a, the exact same thing would exist today, but perhaps it's a, another kind of vanguard. Yeah, and I don't think we want to write trans and gender nonconforming out of the feminist theater historically right, or, right. or, um, or, or even, I mean, we have, I think a different, different conceptual framing now, but I think, you know, we could look back and there are many kind of not just lived realities, but also performed uh, expressions of, of, of that, of, you know, the history of feminism and, and feminism before we had feminism as a, as a, as a terminology. I mean, I, th I think what, what there's, what the panel really does is to bring to really bring into the light in the way that you, you mentioned earlier, Jordan, about like when a light goes up on a woman, it's a radical act of the, of the awareness of things that have always been present. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and the question of like, okay, to your point, Leticia, who, 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 on whom is the light shining now, and why, and uh, and and how that sort of ex expands and and congregates. And I thought your your mention of femme in that context was really was really critical. Yeah, and I also think like something historically or contemporarily that we are coming up against that I didn't notice until like I think Leticia and I were having a conversation about like rom-coms of the 2000s <laughs> and bear with me um and like two like the 2000s as a decade were so like post-feminist super sexist decade of how women femmes non-binary folks were like either not represented in media or they were represented quite <laughs> terribly and I think we're we were coming off of that moment in that decade from this like uber you know, a time when f feminism was like in the media, it was this relationship to um, like the, the relationship that the media had to the feminist movement, right? Had a particular idea of what women were doing or weren't doing. And then it became like, mm, we don't need this anymore. I think we've pretty much figured it out, right? Cool. And then we get the 2010s where like the rise of Twitter and all of these other things I was on Tumblr for that time period. So it was like all of us were kind of rediscovering like this idea of feminism and as a movement and as a social like phenomenon that really needed to be a thing again because look at what we were getting. Um, and so I think like what what a lot of feminists have had to come up against, particularly in the last decade, is kind of having to go back and be like, so like we didn't figure it out. <laughs> we actually have to continue to think about how this political um, orientation shows up in the art that we make, because for so long it felt like it was so like just squashed um, in many ways, or it was it had to be more covert. I'm not sure how to describe that. Um, and and so I think like now it's a it feels like a reclamation mm. of sorts um, in many ways of of going back to that past and being like, oh my, they were doing this in the 70s and 80s, so why aren't we doing this now? Like, what, what happened to that? Um, and so I wonder if, you know, even sometimes I feel like within theater scholarship, it feels like there's not as much as I can identify, you know, older feminist scholars that, like, 
I can just be like, oh, yeah, Jill Dolan, Stacey Wolf, you know, mm-hmm. um, Margaret Wilkerson, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now, it's some, sometimes when I think about where's that, like, crop of, like, feminist scholars who are doing that work, right, it sometimes feels more decentralized. And so mm-hmm. I wonder now, you know, if there can be a, a renaissance of sorts around how we produce feminist scholarship about theater and performance. Yeah, we were just talking about black feminist mm-hmm. performance and theater scholarship. Like we were like, who are like our foremothers, right? Mm-hmm. But who are also the people that are working alongside us in, in this field? And we're, you know, we, I think it was one hand that we were like, okay, any, anybody else? Um, and and I, I'm, I'm curious about that turn. I'm curious. Um, and, and again, you could say this about uh, indigenous feminists, Chicana feminisms, like um, similarly, right? Um, is... As a field, I guess I'm curious of, of you know... Where have all the feminists where, gone? Yeah, where have all the feminists <laughs> gone? Yeah, right? Or, you know, or you know, uh, why, why aren't we hearing these feminist voices, right? Like, you know, we have women in performance as a journal, but, you know, what, what, what if there was, like, a feminist study version of a theater performance journal? Yeah, and, and like, it's always there. It's, a, it's an undercurrent, right? So, like, we know that... There are many scholars who dialogue with, utilize, and employ feminist theory throughout their works. So it's less so about like whether or not people are thinking about feminism or or being informed by feminist scholarship. But I think I don't know. It's like that conscientious, I I don't know, like identification or whatever it might be that I wonder. Um, I just wonder about. <laughs> It's a it's a great question, and the way there are analogs in our field, I think, is a really is a really important thing to think about. Um, and I, to that to that end, I think it would be great to to check out the 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 session on the immediate past, which is coming um, again November eighteenth, and can we and, and we can all register for. Yeah, this is a great teaching tool. I will say um, to bring into your classrooms to sort of bring in for students what feminist theater looked like in, in a time where they weren't alive. Mm-hmm. I had the exact same thought, which is that if I I'm not teaching a class now where it would fit, but what a great way to introduce students to the Wow Cafe and to Split Bridges, et cetera, et cetera. It's a, a great teaching tool. Well, we're here at the Weston Gas Lamp in San Diego for Aster 2021, Theater and Performance After Repetition. But it's not just another Aster, right? For no, me- it's an asterisk. Oh. <laughs> she got it. She, she got thank it. Thank you. Thank you. I'll be, um, I'll be here all episode. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, as, as, as I mentioned, for, for many of us, for most of us, uh, this is the return to in-person scholarly conferences after a long hiatus. There are really some interesting wrinkles to it that are related to the pandemic, but not just that. Uh, San, San Diego and this hotel were originally going to be the site of Astor's 2018 conference, which was canceled to avoid asking members to cross a picket line. Then two years later, Astor was canceled again, this time because of the pandemic. But this time, the conference organizers effectively postponed the event, um, preserved a lot of the programming and planning uh, that was underway for 2020, and moved it uh, a year forward to this week. So in a way, this is has remnants of the conference that was going to be in 2018 in a sort of substantial way. It's also the conference that was going to be in 2020. You can actually go on Astor's website and find the full program for the 2020 conference, uh, Theater and Performance After Repetition, a completely different document, but a lot of the same panels, working groups, et cetera. 
um, and then you can attend the conference today. But um, of course, and this well, has you can't because you're on a on a podcast uh, <laughs> listening to this after the conference is concluded. So you would have to do some really like fancy repetition to be able to catch up with that. But theoretically, yeah, this was this was an editorial you, but you're so right because we're not releasing this until. I, I mean, after the conference will have been done for a while. In, a in way, the, this is in a the quantum, cancel. in the quantum <laughs> podcast, you you can listen to this podcast and then go back and relive Astro Twenty Twenty One. Once you, the unidirectionality <laughs> of time has been defeated, you too can attend this conference. Well, we're being we're being glib, but it really needs to be acknowledged that um, it's all, it's in another sense that you, many of you cannot attend because lots of people can't attend this conference. Some people are immunocompromised um, and it's just too risky. Some people are concerned about kids who haven't been vaccinated. Um, there are many of us- or Travel has become incredibly difficult. Travel is difficult. Yeah. There are universities that aren't still aren't supporting research travel this year and that makes it mm-hmm. impossible to afford. So um, in a way, it's still not a typical aster, um, uh, but there's a lot on offer and um, we wanted to talk about it. So I guess I'll just throw this question to the group. What are you all participating in here at Aster? What are you looking forward to seeing? Uh, what's this experience like being back at a, at a conference? I will say, um, I'm going to say this because this is my first time ever being able to afford to stay in a conference hotel because it's uh, really costly. And that's only because I have an assistant professor position. So this is the first time I'm in the building um, and not down the street. Um, So (laughs) that's nice, I will say. Um, But I'm, I'm excited to be here in the sense, like to be a part of discourse and conversation uh, with so many of my colleagues. And, you know, I'm presenting some of my work from my dissertation that will then make it into my book. Uh, for the first time ever. So I was very like tight-lipped with my my dissertation. Um, I never presented any of the work from it. So this mm-hmm. ASTR will actually be the first time that I'll be presenting on um, Beyonce's digital doubles is what I'm calling it. Um, so I'm really excited about that. It's so good, everyone. <laughs> Jordan reads all my work, so she actually knows what I'm talking about. Um, but I'm also excited because Alicia Harris... And Brandon Jacob Jenkins is going to be here. Um, I'm a huge fan of Alicia Harris's work. um, And I'm excited to sort of just, uh, you know, hear what they have to say in in their dialogue and their conversation. And I am a part of a working group actually organized by Dr. Leticia Ridley and Dr. Melissa Blanco Borelli um, called Repetition and the Human. And the... um, or is it disavowals of humanity and performance or something like that? Repetition of the human disavowals of humanity and performance. And that working group, um, in addition to us submitting our own sort of papers around what it means to perform the human in, in many different ways, uh, we also had to read some articles by uh, Sylvia Winter. Um, and we're going to be in conversation with one another about how her work can inform this kind of philosophical turn that's happening in academia writ large, but also particularly in the humanities <laughs> and performance. I'm like, Ooh, can I keep up with the philosophers that are coming? <laughs> but, um, but I appreciate this working group, particularly because this idea of um, the post-human or post-humanity studies or post-humanism can often be framed in a very Eurocentric um, white Western model. Mm-hmm. And so what is it? I appreciate 
the um, the organizers of the group, Dr. Ridley and Dr. Blanco Borelli, for um, for situating this idea within Black feminist studies and Black critical theory, and thinking about how a scholar from the Caribbean is conceptualizing the human, um, and 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 getting us to think from that perspective, a perspective I would say that I always think from, but. It's it's great to bring that perspective into performance studies, which kind of can feel a little bit more, more marginalized within our field. So I'm and excited. she was a playwright. Sylvia Winter was a playwright. Sylvia Winter was a playwright. She she also wanted to be a performer and wanted to be an actress. So yeah, a lot of people do not talk about that when they talk about her philosophical work. I'm like, it's deeply informed by performance. So exciting. <laughs> Sounds like a great working group, really. Sarah. Um, so I just finished my last meeting uh, on the executive committee. So I'm congratulations, stepping down to from freedom. That. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, uh, and 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 then I'm here to record the podcast, but not. I'm I'm actually this is a rare conference where I'm not presenting in part because I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to be here in person um, uh, because of the border. Um, but I do just want to say I'm very much looking forward to uh, Marla Carlson's uh, presidential address. She is finishing her term as president, um, probably the least precedented uh, presidency of the uh, uh, ASTR history. Um, and so, and she's, I, but she's in this sense bringing back something in a full, you know, uh, presentation um, uh, of her thoughts and research and and, and work and. She's um, going to be talking in part about the show Blindness that circulated um, as a kind of socially distant theater, I think originally at the Don Marwar House, but then toured internationally. So I'm really looking forward to those thoughts. Um, but a big kudos to everybody who has made the conference possible and has kind of hung in there through it. Um, the conference organizers for sure, but also the ASTR leadership team. Um, and to everybody, you know, who, who you know, f found a way to be here. I think it's a, it's a really great, uh, great experience. And hopefully we can just keep making it more accessible in the future. So everybody can be here next time. Indeed. I hope so. Yeah, Sarah, like you, I, well, I'm doing even less, uh, which is not unusual than you are. I'm here to record the podcast yeah, that's it. I'm not in the conference program at all, not on the EC, um, but really glad to be here for this. I'm looking forward to the first plenary session tomorrow morning um, uh, Untimely Humans. We're recording on Thursday afternoon. There, there have been a couple of working sessions that have, or a couple of uh, groups of working sessions that have gone ahead, but um, tonight we'll have the conference reception and welcome, and, and I'm just looking forward to catching plenaries, and I may drop in on a working session. Dropping in on a working session is always kind of a weird thing. Thing. I mean, being in a working session is frequently a weird thing, and, and often they're really good. Sometimes, I don't know, it's 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 frequently a really rewarding experience. Sometimes, uh, I don't know, you, you kind of wonder why you're paired with the people you're paired with. Um, and then there's always the weird, uh, you know, sort of quasi-public nature of it. The, the doors are open to the room. You can go in if you're interested in the topic and listen to people continue the conversation that they've been having for weeks or months, or in this case, years, because a lot of these working sessions were constituted more than a year ago and have been, you know, uh, going, um, uh, anticipating a meeting for a long time. Um, I'm not sure how, uh, what you all have been hearing about working sessions. I know some working sessions have lost a lot of participants who couldn't make it in person. Others, it seems like people are, are, are going strong, um, or, you know, the majority of the working sessions coming to meet. I have felt 
like in just the, you know, less than 24 hours that I've been here, really foremost, just the kind of uh, shock of seeing people again. And this is something that is sort of an ongoing experience of the pandemic. You're suddenly you're in a room and there are people and you haven't seen them for a couple of years. And it's a little bit, I, I don't know about you all. I find conferences in general to be a little bit social anxiety provoking more so than a lot of socializing that happens. And so now seeing people and being in the same room or the same space, uh, uh, and these are the people in the profession that you know, it's a little bit, I don't know, there's some, there's some jitters there, honestly. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'd like to speak. No, I'm kidding. Um, yeah, I, I definitely, I remember like tweeting last year before I made my Irish goodbye from Twitter, um, like social anxiety in the time of social distancing. <laughs> um, definitely felt that the first time I stepped into a rehearsal room after like 18 months or however long. And I, I was happy to be there, but I was also like, do I remember how to do this? No, I don't. Yeah, that's correct, Leticia. Leticia shaking her head. Um, but I, I also was, like, I'm also feeling like with the ideas that were that have been in development for two years, I remember returning to the paper that I submitted to the working session, and I was like, I definitely don't feel this way <laughs> anymore. And like the when people talk about you know twenty twenty and part of twenty twenty one is like the lost years, or like the lost era. I definitely feel that when it comes to the scholarship that I produced <laughs> prior to the pandemic, um, and now revisiting it because I'm just like I have. I definitely need to like have some time to <laughs> to reorient myself to these conversations that were supposed to literally happen three years ago. Um, so that's that's where I am in terms of this working session is like just trying to get back into the groove of talking about the ideas that I that I were that I have no longer um, been at the forefront of my mind. <laughs> Yeah, for me, it's always the awkwardness of like when you, one, to be like, is that person who I think it is with their <laughs> mask on across the room? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then being like, I'm not ignoring you. I just didn't know if it was you and I didn't want to do that awkward like, hey, and the person's like, hey, I guess I don't know who you are. Um, and then also when you see someone and you're like, do we hug? Do we fist bump? Do we just nod in like, I see you, you see me? Um, and just trying to navigate, you know, sociality in COVID-19. Because uh, we're still very much in it, right? And how do you navigate that in like a conference setting now? Yeah, I think last year, the past 18 months, it's been really hard to write and to think for a lot of different reasons, for different people, for different reasons. And then there's also the practice of um, socializing and then socializing about the ideas. It's challenging, you know. Um, but it really it really does feel good to be back in a, in a space with these people. It's a Overall, I feel like it's a really great community. And I'm glad that Esther has has made it happen again. Well, I think that is uh, about what we had planned to talk about. We have one more segment. This is, of course, the drafts. These are our sort of individual um, thoughts in progress, um, uh, things that are on our minds. Um, I don't know. Jordan, would you like to start us off with your draft, please? Yes. Um, so... At the forefront of my mind is musical theater writ large, and per particularly, though, how it shows up on TV. Um, and one such television program that has captured my attention for at least the five episodes of the 10-episode season is 
Dear White People, um, season five is actually a musical season. Um, so they have incorporated a sort of jukebox musical um, um, aspect to it where they're doing songs from the 90s. Um, so it is a bit jarring to watch the series and suddenly they're bursting into, um, you know, Boys to Men and Jodeci and, you know, <laughs> all these different artists. It, sometimes the, I mean, I think Alanis Morissette was on the list. I mean, there's like so many wide range of, of artists, but also the songs, again, this is my dramaturgy brain, but I'm just like, what is the song doing for the narrative? You know, I'm like, I'm being so annoying about it. Um, so I'm curious to see where the season ends up. It is the, also the final season of the show, which is interesting. Um, I actually think it's season four, not season five. Um, but it's it's very interesting that they chose this particular dynamic to close out the entire show with. Um, so I'm just I'm just curious um, about that. So yeah, dear white people, season four is <laughs> at the forefront of my mind right now. Fantastic, fantastic, um, Sarah. Uh, so I, I, like many of you have been, um, sort of like down the rabbit hole of squid game and as, um, part of a larger look at, uh, and this is not an informed opinion at all, but, but just a, a sort of amazement at the success of the Korean national cultural, uh, 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 strategy, um, cultural production strategy and the, the, the just really deliberate and very, very smart export of, uh, of Korean culture over the last 10 years or so. Um, uh, I, I would not consider myself ARMY uh, for BTS, but I live with, um, uh, so I identify as ARMY wife. Um, <laughs> hashtag ARMY wife. Um, and, and, and I really, I find it quite amazing and, and, for me, the question is like, why is this, what about now? Why is this work becoming so popular so fast? And I would say part of it is an unbelievable technological uh, sophistication and a really, really thoughtful, uh, like again, a national culture strategy. Um, uh, and, um, but also just like the right thing at the right, at the right moment and the ways in which, you know, BTS and other K-pop is capturing global imaginations um, and the way that Squid, I mean, Squid Game is off the chart in terms of how successful it is relative to, I mean, it is it is literally a, a global phenomenon, very much akin to the way that that BTS is a global phenomenon. And so I, I'm, I've been just, again, and I'm, I'm, I'm I, I lack the, the cultural awareness, I lack the language to be able to really make sense or answer any of these questions. So I just sort of sit in my own ignorance waiting for people smarter than I am to, to tell me what to think about it. So in these cases, K-pop, uh, uh, Squid Game, it's not that these are just hits in Korea that have happened to catch on elsewhere, but that they're being produced for a global audience. There is a, I mean, there's a, what is it called? I think it's um, K4 um, or K, there's, um, there's like an immersive um, virtual um, reality exhibition that was in Paris or may still be in Paris um, that is a kind of uh, collection of uh, Korean uh, cultural production. Um, but no, I mean, I mean, many countries, so, so being in the U.S. 
you know, like the U.S. is sort of by default as like a, you know, cultural imperialist. Um, hello, Charlotte Canning and, and her wonderful books on these. Um, but but in other smaller countries, it, it's a very deliberate strategy. Like, it, there is a, you know, um, you know, shout out to to my adopted home, you know, land of Canada. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, Canada was just the feature at the, the Frankfurt um, Book Fair as a, as a deliberate part of cultural export um, and trying to make global audiences aware of Canadian cultural production. In this instance, you know, literary, mostly, mostly fiction. Um, but it is part of, again, smaller, smaller countries. And so in Korea, it has been um, um, a, a very deliberate strategy. Um, now, I, that's not to say that certain kinds of production have been orchestrated centrally um, it's more about like what is the cultural production occurring in the country and then bringing that in, co in a coordinated way to global audiences. Mm -hmm. um, and, and now we are at the end of everything I know about that, so I will stop talking. I also just want to say K-pop the musical was supposed to be in D.C., but unfortunately due to the pandemic, they decided not to be able to come there, but it will still be going to Broadway I don't know that for sure, but I'm going to say that. Nice. I think it is. <laughs> I think it is, but I want it to. It sounds, so I just want to say. <laughs> it sounds true. And how could it not? It sounds like Broadway is the perfect place for for, for that. Um, your two drafts work together so well. My draft could not fit more poorly with them, but I'm going to give it anyway. Um, so I've been thinking about this for a while. I have a friend who um, has been working, he's a geologist and archaeologist by training, and he's been working with a team of other scholars examining handprints and footprints that are becoming more and more, um, uh, I guess, uh, analyzable, available due to subterranean um, electromagnetic resistance um, uh, scanning. So there are human footprints in the white sands desert of Nevada that are now able to be analyzed and dated. And so there's been um, publishing on this in, in science and nature and in scientific journals um, showing, for example, recently that uh, human beings were in uh, North America, modern-day New Mexico, 11,500 to 13,000 years ago, possibly 20,000 years ago. That changes the sort of um, uh, uh, paleological timeline that, that that people had had. There's another study that was just published, uh, I mean, an, kind of an amazing discovery, uh, showing images of children's hand and footprints on a panel in a um, in a hot springs in the Tibetan plateau that are estimated to be two hundred thousand years old, and so these are exciting things. I always love these sort of you know uh, stories of of humanity, this sort of deep history of of the of the species. Um, but what to me has been really interesting also is that these prints can be analyzed in a terrific amount of detail. So it's not just that they can show the the size and 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 make uh, you know hypotheses about the the age or the sex of the individual who's left this print, but you can see differences in the way that uh, steps are made, weight is distributed. Mm -hmm. So in the in some of these white sands prints, uh, the scientists believe that they have identified the tracks of an adolescent female carrying an infant on one side because on one side the footprints are heavier and they can track their interactions with other animals. They can see where the humans have crossed prints uh, of like a giant sloth on one, in, in, uh, on one part of their journey and then had the, their uh, prints crossed by the animal in another. And my friend who works on these teams has been asking me about 
his hypothesis that these are that some of this shows artistic creation that some of these prints seem to have been left there in patterns some of them seem to be left there uh, as though they might be signaling some sort of display so analogous to you know sort of paleolithic era handprints in the Lascaux cave network in France it's possible that we're about to discover a whole lot of um, even much older and, and in some cases more information-rich remnants of human patterned behavior. And I wonder if this couldn't become a sort of new area of research in our field. And I'm thinking of you know, Rebecca Schneider's recent research into yeah. gesture and hands up where she cites the Paleolithic caves and, and Jan Montel, uh, uh, an old uh, colleague and friend of mine who's worked on paleo performance. So these, these things I think are pretty interesting and I'm wondering if people in our field might get into them. Leticia, what is your draft? So my draft, I'm returning to the land of TV. Um, Good, thank you. And musical theater. <laughs> Good. Oh. Wow. <laughs> to talk about Schmigadoon, which is on Apple TV. Which for the folks who may not know what that is, um, what the show's about, it's a parody uh, and homage to sort of golden golden age musicals. Um, and I really enjoyed it, and I was it was a fun time. I will say, you know, in my excitement about it. I was talking to Jordan about it and I told her, I was like, I'm going to cite you on this. Jordan was like, yeah, that was great. You know, they talked about gender in really interesting ways, but um, they never interrogated race at all, like <laughs> in the entire show. And, you know, one of the leading uh, men is a black man, right? Um, so I enjoy it for, you know, it's gendered critiques and it's happiness like i and it's campiness i, I just really enjoy Kristen that and with people okay <laughs> also i sidebar i also love that they got theater people you know like how sometimes they're like okay we're gonna do the musical theater thing for tv and then they get non-musical theater people and it's never as good as like the musical theater girls they got the musical theater girls and i think the show definitely benefited from it so that's just my draft of something that i enjoyed and then I recommend that other people watch if you want some happiness in your life. If not, then maybe not. They do have that one throwaway line, right, about the the the, the colorblind casting, right, or the racially inclusive yes, casting. Yes, in the first episode. In the yeah, but you're you're absolutely right. It's like they they sort of think they take care. Of it. It's it's like okay, and we've acknowledged it, and then moving on. <laughs> this is great. Well, listeners, you have great new recommendations for your. Was TV that performative? <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> uh oh. Wait. Yes, probably. Yes, definitely. It was definitely performative. We just don't know in what ways it was. In yeah. all the ways. In all the ways it was performative. Um, Leticia, Jordan, Sarah, thank you so much uh, for, for being on the podcast. Listeners, um, uh, we will be back with you in about a month with another episode. On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for On Tap, and on Twitter at ontappodcast.